That's a joke. Cindy, take your time. No problem. So, uh, do you believe in the existence of Satan? What evidence do you have that he exists? Yeah, the Word of God says. So the same body of information that tells us about the Savior tells us about Satan. Uh, we're going to talk about him today. It's a peculiar text. It's not very encouraging. It's weird. <clears throat> but it's in the Bible. So we're going to deal with it. Uh, David, um, David did a lot of good things. He trusted God in many cases. He was uh, hotly pursued by Saul, first king of Israel. David was going to be Saul's replacement. Saul did not like this. Diagnose it as you will, I don't know. Was Saul psychiatrically disturbed? Was he demon-possessed? I don't, I don't know. All I know is his behavior was irrational and erratic, and he wanted to kill David. And he pursued him over years. And at least on two occasions, David had an opportunity to take matters into his own hand. <coughs> And deal with Saul. And he refused to, saying, no, I'm, I'm going to trust God. I'm not going to exercise my option um, to take matters into my own hand. But David's a human, just like you and I. And, and he had, I think, a lapse in judgment. And so on one occasion, he took his men, they numbered 600, and all their family members. So lots of people. And he crossed out of Israelite territory into, of all places, Philistine territory. And he worked out a deal with the king of the Philistines, a guy named Achish, for David and his men and their families to live amongst the Philistines. And David negotiated uh, a, a spot called Ziklag, kind of in the country, away from Philistine cities, so David could do what he wanted to do while there in Philistine territory, which was to go out on daily raids against those who opposed Israel. So he never denied his allegiance to Israel as an Israelite, but he succeeded in persuading the Philistine king that that is in fact what he had done. He now could be considered an ally of the Philistines because he's opposing Israel. Well, the opposite was true. And I suppose David thought like he pulled off the perfect crime. But it caught up with him. And so this is what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 28. Now, if you're wondering, why are we in 28? When you were in chapter 29 last week, it's because I was sick and Dear Brother Chuck, who just got back from a conference, studied 1 Samuel 29, allowing me to do this text because I had this one done. So we're out of order a little bit, but I, I think we'll make it anyway. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll be in 1 Samuel 30. And you know we're soon going to finish 1 Samuel. We mentioned to you we're going to then go into Galatians. Did you know about this? Galatians, that's in the New Testament. So there you go, for, for you Gentile people will be in the, in the New Testament for a while. So here's what it says, 
1 Samuel 28, verse 1. Now, it came about in those days that the Philistines, you know the Philistines are thought to be a seafaring people who sailed from the Greek islands and landed on the Mediterranean coast of what we now call Israel. Why did they do this? Lots of theories. Earthquakes, conquest, who knows? But they're not Arab peoples, Philistines. They're not Semitic peoples. Did you know Jews and Arabs are descendants of Shem? Hence the word Shemite. Hence you get the word anti-Semite, anti-Semitic. So Jews and Arabs were actually cousins. Isn't that crazy how we're at each other's throats when we're actually related? It's terrible. Anyway, the Philistines are non-Arab peoples who came to the land, and the term Palestine or Palestinian is derived from the term Philistine. Who came up with that? The Romans. The Jews had the nerve on one occasion to revolt against Rome. The Romans did not like this. So they beat up on the Jews and burnt down a bunch of stuff and kicked the Jews out of the land and renamed it Palestinia <coughs> after the perennial foes of the Jews, the Philistines. So that's where the term came from. Okay, so these are the Philistines. Now they settled on, the, I mentioned, the Mediterranean coast of Israel in five major cities. Sometimes I can remember all five, some, most of the time, no, but you've heard of some. Ashdod, um, Ashkelon, Ekron. How about this? I bet you heard of this one. Gath. Who comes from Gath? Goliath. Exactly. So there are these five Philistine uh, cities. Do you know Gaza is in the news quite a bit uh, today? That's that would have been an ancient Philistine territory. Okay, that's who they are. So it says it comes about. Philistines gathered their armed camps for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. Da, da, da. The gig is up. David so succeeded in persuading Achish that he is his ally, Achish took him up on it and said, cool, your men will be with my men as we go against those Jews. That's the situation, the dilemma David is confronted with. So he responds, verse 2, he said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. So that's deliberately an ambiguous statement. He's not saying, yippee, I'll you know, fight with you against my own people. He's not saying that. He leaves it rather ambiguous. But Achish puts a positive construction on it and says, very well, I'll make you my bodyguard for life. Whoa, my goodness. So David's deception was so successful, Achish is going to appoint him as bodyguard for life. By the way, in Hebrew, the word bodyguard means the keeper of my head, which is a little ironic, ironic because David removed the head of a pretty famous Philistine not long ago named Goliath. Anyway, Achish thinks David's going to fight with him against the Israelites. Now, this is a brilliant literary um, kind of approach here. Uh, the reader is drawn into the story, 
and is anxious to see how this works out. What's he going to do? How's David going to handle this? How will he resolve the dilemma? But you don't get an answer in all of chapter 28. You have to wait till you get to 29 to find out what happens, and you already did last week. So let's just close in prayer. And <coughs> so, so here's what you get. You don't get resolution of David's dilemma in this chapter. In fact, you get introduced to Saul's dilemma. And the two are juxtaposed, David's problem and Saul's of a different sort. You'll see what I mean. Look at uh, verse 3 now. Now Samuel was dead. So the author is first uh, filling us in on the circumstances because it'll become relevant. Samuel was a prophet in Israel. He was God's representative. He spoke truth. In fact, he spoke truth to, Sam, to Saul, but Saul didn't listen to him. And then Samuel died. So we're reminded of it. Samuel was dead and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. Now that's a good thing. Saul did some good things. He removed from the land those who were, as it says, mediums and spiritists. So the voice of the prophet is gone when you're looking for guidance. And even the voices of occult practitioners has largely been eradicated from the land. Uh, they too offered divine guidance. So a godly source of guidance is gone. Ungodly sources of guidance are gone. That's kind of the situation the author wants us to be familiar with. By the way, mediums and spiritists claim an ability to make contact with the dead. It's called necromancy. And uh, they do so in one of two ways, they claim. One, they can literally bring up the spirit of a deceased person who will speak to those who summon him to come up. Or the dead person can speak through the medium kind of as a channel of communication to those who, who want to hear from, from the dead. That's what mediums and spiritists, generally speaking, uh, do. So this is the situation. Samuel's gone. Mediums and spiritists are gone. And, and here's the situation. Verse 4, the Philistines gathered together and came and camped in Shunem. Shunem is a place about 75 miles to the north of um, present-day Gaza. Present-day Gaza. So Gaza is in the south on the western border of Israel, right along the Mediterranean Sea. If you go straight up north about 75 miles, you go to Shunem. Why are the Philistines that far north? Well, I think they're making some wise military decisions here, one of which was to divide the armies of Israel north and south. You see, when they're in the south, Israel can kind of organize corporately and have a unified fighting force, but this is a good military strategy. Philistines will move up a little further north and divide Israel in half. So they go to this place called Shunem, which is up pretty far north, and it says, and Saul gathered all Israel together, and they camped in a place called Gilboa. So Shunem was on a hill, 
another very standard military practice, the high ground. But it was on a hill overlooking a valley, a plain called the Jezreel Valley, Valley of Jezreel. And it is, oh, I don't know, 20 miles long, maybe 13 miles across. Napoleon visited it, and Napoleon said this would be a good location for a war, a good world war. That's what Napoleon said. And he has no idea how accurate he was because there's going to be quite a war there. You probably have heard about it. It's called the Battle of Armageddon, right in the Jezreel Valley. It's actually not the place of a battle. It's the staging area of the world's armies. Uh, they're really not after the Jezreel Valley. They're after something to the south. It's a city. Do you know what it's called? Jerusalem. A anyway, the Jezreel Valley was, is quite, you go there today, it, um, it's agricultural. Farmers plow it and plant, and it's, it's level ground. This was a great advantage for the Philistines because they became experts in metallurgy. They could make iron instruments of war, including chariots, of which the Israelites had none. Now, you try going up against chariots when you don't have any chariots. So the Philistines would be at a great advantage here. They have the high ground. They have this level plain for chariot warfare. The Israelites had learned to be adept at fighting in the hills, not in the plains. Also, Shunem is located on a big thoroughfare called the Via Maris. Via Maris, it's Latin. It means the way of the sea, way of the sea. It runs from north to south. And to this day, you can travel on it. When we go to Israel, we, we go to the Jezreel Valley, we go to place of the Valley of uh, the Battle of Armageddon, and we travel the Via Maris. And it was a trade route, so the Philistines thought once we defeat Israel, we will have control of this north-south trade route. We can stop caravans. We can, we can impose taxes on them. We can do all kinds of... So the Philistines are smart. They got it together. While this is happening, Saul and his troops are camped at a place called Gilboa, which is just a few miles to the south of Shunem, but not so far that Saul was unaware of the Philistine presence. In fact, he was so aware... It says in verse 5, when Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, see, he could see it from where he was, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. In um, English, I'm not sure we get the full thrust. He was panic-stricken, not just a little anxiety. He was out of control with fear and terror. And so when Saul, verse 6, inquired of the Lord, I mean, that's a good thing, right? He runs to God. When you, so it says, when he inquired of the Lord, look at this. The Lord didn't answer him, either by dreams or by urim or by prophets. Why not? Well, because God looks on our heart. There was no repentance at this point in Saul's heart. He was terrified, and he wanted God to tell him how to deal with the Philistines. But he didn't really want to hear from God. He resisted hearing from God's priestly order, from God's prophetic order. He did his own thing. He disobeyed God on numerous occasions. Folks, we ought not take our access to God's guidance lightly um, if we're not willing to receive what God has for us. Why should he keep giving it? So he cut 
off from all sources of communication in that day. Remember, that day was before we had the canon of Scripture. Canon. It's a term means measure or standard. Books that um, meet the standard of being inspired, divinely authorized books of the Bible. We have 66 of them now. That's where we go for our guidance. But remember, this was in a day when we didn't have the Bible in its totality. So God would speak to people often in dreams and then through something called the Orim. Heard about this, the Orim and the Tumim? It means the lights. The high priest would wear kind of a breastplate, an ephod, and there were 12 jewels, stones, one for each of the tribes of Israel. You could go to the high priest as God's representative inquiring of God about decisions you have to make. Now, how, how God communicated himself through these lights, I don't know. Maybe some were illuminated if the answer was yes. Maybe others if the answer was no. I don't know. But anyway, uh, Saul is cut off from that source of guidance and by prophets. I mean, he killed prophets. Remember what he did at a place called Nob? Nob is in Jerusalem. Sandra will go to this place. No, every place here we will go to. So, so you don't have to pay attention now. Yeah, I'm just. But anyway, um, uh, no. Remember, Saul killed all the had all the prophets killed over there. Well, but, but there's no voice of prophecy now because he he killed all the prophets. This reminds me of something said in Proverbs chapter one about people like Saul. It says uh, in verse twenty eight to thirty one. Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof, so they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. And that's exactly what we're about to see happen with Saul. So verse 7, Saul said to his servants, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. Are you kidding me? He did the good thing of seeking to rid the land of mediums and spiritists. And now, in desperation, he's cut off from God. Now he's seeking counsel from an ungodly source. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a woman who's a medium at Endor. So apparently a couple witches and mediums survive in the land. She's one at a place called Endor. Just to show you how desperate he is, Endor is just a few miles north of Shunem. That's the Philistine encampment, which means if Saul is going to access the witch at Endor, he has to, at great personal risk, he has to go through Philistine territory. There are guard posts, there are sentries, there, there are scouts. He has to go through all that. And in desperation, that's essentially what he's about to do. But, 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 but do you know what he's about to do is condemned by God? Even before Israel entered the land, God said in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 to 11, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, 
or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead. You know, it's not like these things don't work. Uh, The point is they work by whose power? Not the Holy Spirit, other spirits. They work. Satan has the capacity to give supernatural power to some of his vehicles of operation. Who could see the future? Who could say things? Who could conjure up spirits? Nobody is saying this isn't real. That's the point. It's very real. But God says, keep your distance from anything like this because it is real and you could be affected. There's the Holy Spirit and there are the unholy spirits and they can affect even believers. You see a proliferation of interest in occultic things today. The word occult, by the way, is Latin. From the Latin means hidden, hidden things. Occult practitioners are ones who claim by various powers they have incantations and other things. They have the capacity to see hidden things uh, the rest of us don't, don't see. So, and it proliferates today. A man in the last class told me he went to the library over here the other day, Sage Mart Area Public Library, and there, there was advertisement for a meeting. Come and to this meeting and come find your inner guide. Uh, it's occultic. It's channeling. It's right here in the public library that we're paying our taxes for. I mean, you, all these witch shows on TV and movies and all the rest. You may think I'm a fanatic, but uh, I, I, I steer clear of those things. I don't trust myself. I don't want to be influenced. I don't want to know about them. God outlaws the palm reading, horoscopes. I mean, I don't read my fortune cookie in a Chinese restaurant. I mean, I eat the cookie, (laughs) especially when my wife's not looking, you know, because she tell me, it's all sugar, it's all sugar. But anyway, uh, I just don't need somebody, I don't know, some factory in Beijing trying to tell me what my future holds, for crying out loud. I have the Bible. I just don't want to mess with any of that, any of that stuff. There are popular book series that many of you, as Christian parents, uh, allow your kids and grandkids to read. Maybe well-written stuff, but I'd be really careful. I, I challenged one lady one time, a good mom, and she told me, "Yeah, but for the first time, my son is reading." I said, "Man, I'd rather have an illiterate son than a demonized one." I'd be real careful. I would be really... Why am I sitting? That's what God says here. Stay away from this stuff. Well, the king of Israel is running right head on into trouble. He's going to go to the witch at Endor. So, verse 8, Saul disguised himself by putting on other clothes. You have to do that. Remember, he's cutting through Philistine territory. And he went, he and two men with him, uh, and they came to the woman by night. By the way, I've been thinking about these two men. They're government employees. He's the king. They're government employees. Typically, you submit to the government, especially if you're employed by it. But not absolutely. If they were godly men, they might have said, king, respectfully, we can't promote this because God prohibited it. We must obey God rather than man. If they were godly men, that's what they should have done. I don't know what I would have done if I was there. I would hope I would have been bold enough to respectfully say to the king, I must obey God rather than man. Folks, as good Christian citizens, I hope we are, we owe the government a submission and respect, but not 
Absolutely. We only owe unconditional obedience to God. <laughs> we don't owe unconditional obedience to any other authority. If any other authority is requiring of us something contrary to what the highest authority requires, we must obey God rather than man. So, for instance, abortion is legalized in our country. It's bad. But here's what would be worse. If abortion was mandated, it is in some countries like China, then what would you do? You'd have to say, no, I must obey God rather than man. You see what I mean? So these guys went with the flow, these two guys, but I don't think, that, I don't think, they, I don't think they should have done it. But anyway, they did. So Saul and two men with him, they go, and they come to the woman by night, and he said, conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me whom I shall, uh, whom I shall name to you. But the woman said to him, behold, you know what Saul has done. So she did not recognize him to be King Saul at this point. So she says to this stranger, you know what Saul has done, how he's cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you then laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? And Saul vowed to her, by the Lord. You can't do that. Look what he's doing. He says, as the Lord lives... No punishment shall come upon you for this thing. God said, don't be a witch or you die. Saul says, God didn't mean it. Be a witch. You won't die. And he invokes God's name. In basically insinuating, God will go back on what he said. Folks, you can't do that. That's called blasphemy. We hear it all the time. People say, uh, uh, I swear by God. You better be real careful. That's called using the Lord's name in vain, if it is in vain. You cannot invoke God's name that frivolously, profanely, and think it's not an offense to him. That's what the king is doing in this particular case. Unbelievable. He vows in the name of the Lord. Hmm. Then the woman said, she's persuaded that everything will be fine. She said, well, then whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, what? We were told earlier that Samuel died. When the woman saw Samuel, which leads to all kinds of questions, how did she see a guy previously dead? I mean, who died. And we're not told how. You know why we're not told how? Because too much information is, uh, on this area is very dangerous for us. So the scriptures do not tell us how occult practitioners ply their trade. It's not for us to know. Curiosity can kill the Christian cat. We don't need to know how occult practitioners, channelers, spiritists, fortune tellers, all this, we don't need to know about their procedures. Some things we are to be innocent and ignorant of. We don't know how this happened, but for crying out loud, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. Now that implies to me she was surprised. 
But why would she be surprised if she typically did this? I have a theory. It's not Bible. This is just me thinking about the Bible. I don't think this appearance of uh, Samuel was satanically produced. I think somehow God was behind it. Because God had, even now, through Samuel, something further, as you'll see, to say to Saul. I'm just guessing here. I know uh, Satan, uh, father of lies and deception, can speak to people as if it's a dead person speaking to them, seances and all this kind of stuff. But in this case, I'm a little perplexed. If that was the case, why would the witch be surprised? She was shocked. Anyway, she cries out with a loud voice. I told you this was going to be weird, right? Is this spooky stuff, a little spooky? Yeah, I hope it is. I hope it is. We're not supposed to be comfortable with this sort of thing. Anyway, the woman spoke to Saul saying, why have you deceived me? For you are Saul, is what she says. And the king said to her, don't be afraid, but what do you see? That's his interest. The woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his form? She said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped with a robe, maybe a kind of a priestly robe. Anyway, Saul knew it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and did homage, which is a little too late, a little too little, too little too late. And then Samuel said to Saul, verse 15, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I'm greatly distressed for the Philistines are waging war against me and God has departed from me and no longer answers me either through prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I've called you that you may make known to me what I should do. Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary? Don't talk to me. If God cut you off, I have nothing to say. And he goes on to say, the Lord has done accordingly as he spoke through me previously. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, to David. As you did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek, so the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Uh, Samuel reminds Saul of his disobedience remaining unrepented of. When the Israelites came into the land, the Amalekites gave him a hard time. So here's what God said, Deuteronomy 25 verses 17 to 19. Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, you must not forget. That's the commandment. And God, uh, excuse me, uh, Saul disobeys. Samuel says, because you did that, this is all happening to you now. Verse 19, moreover, the Lord also will give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. You say, well, maybe if the king is a creep. Why does the whole nation have to suffer? Welcome to the real world. 
Ask the people in North Korea. Just because their leader is a nut, why do they, they have to suffer? Ask the people in Venezuela. Ask the people in Syria who are being gassed by their own leader. Why should we suffer because of one man? Put your finger on any place on the globe. As the leader goes, so goes the whole nation. I'm not a historian, but is it just me? I've never, I've, I don't know of a time when more countries of the world are led by more lunatics than this time in which we live. You got Putin in Russia? If you think he's a friendly ally, mm -mm -mm. you have the leaders of Iran? Now they're threatening to bomb Tel Aviv and, you know, crazy stuff. They are inviting world cataclysm, the Iranians, the government. You know why? It's a theological perspective. It's not military. They believe, based on their interpretation of the Quran, that um, before the successor to Muhammad comes, the next caliph to set up the next worldwide caliphate, that means under the rule of Islam, before the next caliph comes, there has to be world catastrophe. That's why you threaten Iran all you want. They say, bring it on. They want the That's why negotiating, you know, as you think you're negotiating with reasonable parties across the table, as our last administration attempted to do, at taxpayer expense, gave nuclear capacity <laughs> to Iran. Even a fundamental understanding of Islam would have told you, don't do that. But anyway, it happened. So uh, you say, does that mean the Iranians are our enemies? What? No. Are the Russians? Are the North Koreans? No. No, a thousand times no. I'm just telling you. As the ungodly governmental leaders of these nations go, the people are victimized. So as with Saul, it says here, moreover, the Lord will also give over Israel along with you into the hand of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. Now, he's not saying you're going to be in eternal bliss with me. Here, he's not giving a full-orbed theology on eternity. He's simply saying you're going to die. Like I'm dead, you'll be dead. You and your sons, tomorrow. That literally happened. The next day after this text, they died on Mount Gilboa. We have visited the area. It was a horrific death. Saul was wounded. And he asked his armor bearer to kill him. And the armor bearer said, I can't do it. So Saul falls on his own sword because if he fell into Philistine hands, they would humiliate him and do crazy stuff. So they cut off his head. They hung his body on a wall called Beit Shan. We go there. Uh, the Bergerons. Have we been to Beit Shan? I think we're going back there uh, again. I mean, just uh, Jonathan and, and his brothers are killed. You know, folks, this idea of if I sin privately, it's nobody's business, that's a very naive perspective on sin. God is not mocked, there's no such thing as a private sin. It spills over. It affects everybody around you. 
That's why God hates it. So anyway, because of Saul's behavior, all this terrible tragedy is going to happen. Indeed, the Lord will give over the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. So verse 20, then Saul immediately fell full length upon the ground and was very afraid because of the words of Samuel. No repentance whatsoever. Also, there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day and all night. Now, this is unusual. So the night before he came to see this lady, he fasted. Why? Fasting is only a good thing if you're doing it for the right reason. If you're fasting to kind of twist God's arm, obligate him to do something for you, that's a goofy use of fasting. I think that's what Saul was probably fasting for. Maybe I can manipulate God to, you know, grade on a curve and let me know what's going on. By the way, if you're the commander-in-chief of a military force, as was Saul, I don't recommend fasting the night before battle. No, man, you better eat your protein and get ready to join the fight the next day. Anyway, that's what he does. So he's like exhausted, he's drained, he's depressed, and all this kind of stuff. In verse 21, uh, the woman came to Saul and saw that he was terrified and said to him, Behold, your maidservant has obeyed you, and I've taken my life in my hand and have listened to your words which you spoke to me. So now also, please listen to the voice of your maidservant. Let me set a piece of bread before you that you may eat and have strength when you go on your way. Well, look at this, a nice witch. She's like the witches on TV. They look like the girl you want to bring home to mama. Those witches, I'm telling you, they're pretty and they're friendly and they have a sense of humor and all the rest. Well, this lady is not repulsive at all. She didn't look much like Satan. She looked like a nice, caring lady. But uh, she offers the king some food. But verse 23, he refused and said, I will not eat. You know, he's just... He's just shut down at this point. However, his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to them. So he arose from the ground and sat on the bed, and the woman had a fattened calf in the house. Now, I want to tell you, that is not typical, to have ready to consume a fattened calf. What is that? That's a calf you took out from the herd, and you fed special, a special diet, a ton of food, to do what the name implies. Fatten it up. Why? So you can cut it open and eat that thing. That's why it was considered to be the food of the wealthy in this day. A typical Israelite home would not have a fattened calf ready to devour. She has it. So I'm finding out she's not just a nice lady. She's kind of a well-to-do lady. Hmm. This is really flying in the face of my stereotypes on witches. She's not repulsive at all. So she gets this fattened calf, and she quickly slaughtered it. She took flour, kneaded it, and baked unleavened bread from it. She brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. And then they arose and went away that night. So in closing, what could we conclude? <clears throat> well, a bunch of stuff. One, uh, I think listening to a living Savior makes more sense than trying to summon up a dead prophet. Why would you and I want to explore other sources of guidance in life when we have a living Savior? 
I'm just not interested in tea leaves, palm reading, horoscopes, and so-called Christians who are so gifted they can tell me my future. I'm just not interested in having someone come up to me who says, hey, God told me to tell you. Well, now, why didn't God tell me? Why is he going through you? I mean, there's only one God and mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You're not the mediator of God's communicate to me. I have as much access to him as you do. Why is he talking to you about me? Why doesn't he just tell me? Oh, no, God has told me you have a bright future and all the rest, you know. Good night. Tell me something I didn't know. Sometimes you get more specific stuff. God is telling me, uh, you know, he's called you into the ministry and uh, wants you to sell all your possessions and go with or without your wife and, you know, go to seminary or something. I don't know what. You get all this stuff. Can I just tell you something? Why do you need all that spooky stuff when you can follow a living Savior through life? So God's people don't have to make recourse to alternative sources of guidance unless we cut ourselves off from the genuine source of guidance. And today, for us, it's not dreams, visions, urim, tumim. We don't go to priests and pastors like that anymore. It's the word of God. We have 66 books of God's guidance for life, for crying out loud. Now, you see, but it doesn't tell me everything I want to know. Ah, that's occultic, hidden stuff. Things the Bible doesn't address, we shouldn't pursue. It says in Deuteronomy, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. So one application from this is, stay close to God. Let nothing obstruct your access to his throne of grace Pour your heart out before him when you're seeking his guidance. Wait on him to deliver the goods. Do not seek alternative sources of counsel. That's one thing. Um, Second thing, this tells me even witches could look good, which means I can't go by my eyes in discerning what's real. (laughs) We hate this, but uh, it's healthy not to trust yourself. Sometimes, well, I was watching a guy on TV the other day because I was sick and stupid. And so I watched this guy on TV and <clears throat> he comes across as like one of the most likable guys I've ever seen. In fact, the kind of guy you'd like to be a friend with. Good looking guy. Such a good speaker. Now, I've listened to him three, four, maybe more times. Months apart. It's the same message all the time. And it doesn't have a thing to do with what the Bible says. Nothing. He has a beautiful wife, very attractive, very pleasant looking. She's an airhead. (laughs) She'll do a sermonette from out of nowhere. It has nothing to do with anything. If I was just going on appearances, I would think what I just said is ridiculous. How could you not like such a likable guy? Well, folks, even witches could be likable. She fed the hungry king, this guy. 
She's got money. She's, not, she's no down and outer. She's, she doesn't have some back alley palm reading deal. You kidding me? She had a fattened calf ready to go. Don't let your eyes call the shots for you. Let scripture. When God says don't do something, just don't do it. When God says stay away from all this stuff, just on that basis, stay away from it. Someone wrote a book called The Beautiful Side of Evil. Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. Do you think he's going to come across as a repulsive, big red monster? Even the most naive of us would be repelled by a blatantly evil image. No, no, no. He comes like a gentle lady offering some food and rest and person of some means, you know. Be very, very careful. If the Bible is not our guideline for life and you're using your own discernment, ooh, you're in trouble. All of us could be deceived. And one other suggestion. Why don't you get counsel from the rest of your people here at church? It's one of the reasons God put us together so we could help each other out. If you're about to see a movie, read a book, go to a lecture, um, contribute to someone's ministry, ask around a little bit. You're not obligated to do what someone else tells you to do. That would be called a cult. No, 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 no. You just get counsel. It might help you. Someone may know of something about the someone you don't know that much about. Someone might be able to tell you, yeah, these are my concerns. This is what the person stands for and so on and so forth. I do that, uh, frankly, quite, quite often because you can't know everything, you know, you identify one of Satan's vessels, and he raises up a thousand to take that guy's place. So I don't want to make my life, you know, majoring on those who are false. But but sometimes I have to get guidance. You know, there's some people working in Israel, and uh, I don't know if they're legit or not. So I always get counsel. I call my Israeli friends and others. Hey, have you ever heard of so and so? And sometimes I've been really helped. I find out. Things that I would not know, I go, oh, my goodness, I'm glad you told me. I wouldn't know this, you see. So um, don't be so proud that you're unwilling to get counsel from other Christians here or ministerial staff here, whatever you, whatever you like. Sometimes we know some things, sometimes we don't. We, we don't have secret knowledge. <laughs> it's nothing like that. But, um, you know, did you know part of the reason you pay us? <laughs> is so that we'd be up a little bit on spiritual trends and tendencies and, you know, movements and things out there. And so we, we, might, know, we might know some stuff or at least know who, who to ask to find out about it. So don't, don't rush into things zealously but ignorantly until you kind of, until you know the facts. I know people... Once they're in the embrace of a false teacher, it's very hard for them to be extricated because so many of the false teachers are so nice. Again, the beautiful side, the beautiful side of of evil. So be careful, be careful. Folks, we have a, a living Savior <clears throat> who says, come to me. <laughs> he invites us all. Now, Saul inquired of God and God didn't answer, but please don't misunderstand. That's because of a pattern of disobedience for which Saul didn't repent. But we can come to our Father at any time 
And we can say, oh, God, I need your help. You're my father. Would you guide me? Would you provide? Would you supply? And I guarantee he will answer. It is, it is his desire. We read in the scripture, if a child asks for a uh, fish, he won't be given a snake, will he? If he asks for bread, he won't be given a stone. The idea is how much more does our heavenly father yearn uh, to be a loving father and give us what we need. There's no need for us to look elsewhere. Be careful about what's happening today. The void, spiritual void in our world today is really being filled by Satan and his counterfeits. And so many, many people who deny the evidence for Christ, including the resurrection, are willing to embrace things that have no evidentiary basis. It's very interesting to me. Even in the academic community, the biblical perspective, which has an evidentiary basis, is dismissed. But all kinds of crazy occultic things. You know, like in the library. I bet you you couldn't advertise, hey, Bible study, Sunday morning at Sagemont Church. Come find Jesus to be your real guide and savior in life. Oh, they wouldn't do that, you know, separation of church and state. But here they're advertising, come find your inner transcendent God at the library that we pay for. Oh, for crying out loud. Okay. Jesus says, come to me. I'll give you everything you need. And what I choose not to give you, you don't need to know. I don't need to know more about stuff than God wants me to know. Don't let... um, curiosity stifle your Christian life. Lord Jesus, thank you for being so available to us and for setting us free with truth. Thy word is truth. Give us discernment in these increasingly challenging days with regard to what we read, watch, listen to. Help us to hold each other accountable, keep each other safe, be good sources of information for one another. We would rather consult with a living Savior than any other alleged source of guidance in life. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, well, God bless you folks. Lord willing, we'll be in 1 Samuel 30 next week.